morning, church. It's a great day to be in God's house. And as we enter into the, the week of Thanksgiving, I feel like it's fitting this morning that I begin with expressing some gratitude. And I just want to say this to you, friends, how thankful I am to get to be a part of First Baptist Church Orange. Um, it has been an incredible blessing to me and to my family, uh, some incredible deep friendships that, we've, that the Lord has blessed us to be able to to enjoy here. Uh, it's a privilege to worship here with you every Sunday. And church, I want to let you know this, that you are dearly loved. And not just by me, um, but by the people that are sitting with you right now. And so this morning, if you feel blessed, how about an amen? amen. Now, as we move forward today, we come to the, to the end of about a 17-week journey through the book of Philippians. And I hope that Paul's letter has challenged you. I hope it has encouraged you. I hope it has shaped you. Our theme throughout this whole journey has been one of joy. And so I think it appropriate that we end this journey together the week before, or really the week of Thanksgiving, uh, expressing joy. And we are people that should be full of gratitude as Christians. Now, if you remember last time we were together, we discussed Thanksgiving, that we said this, how do we practice Thanksgiving? Well, it's through prayer, and it's through gratitude, and it's through intention of thought that, you know, our, we're going to struggle to express joy and gratitude if we don't start with what we think about first. And so as you can see today, the title of our message is Thermometers and Thermostats, and I feel the necessity to bring you up to speed on an ongoing battle that takes place in the Fultz household. There is this war that rages between my wife and I over temperature. Now, she likes it warm and suffocating, and I do not. Um, I like it cold because, uh, you know, you can always get a blanket, put on a jacket. There's only so much you can do to, to cool off. Uh, can you relate to this church? Struggle is real. The conflict has de-escalated some after 14 years, but early on it was a daily battle and it was guerrilla warfare. She would turn it down, I would hop out, and I would just, you know, adjust it as it needed to happen. Uh, I will put the AC on in my truck even in the dead of winter. I think I drove to church this morning with the AC on. I don't like to feel stuffy. But my wife, it is complete subterfuge. Sometimes she'll drive my truck and I'll hop in and I'll be driving and I'll get down the road and then I'm just blasted by this suffocating heat. Or in the summer, she'll turn the vents off and I think, why am I sweating? Oh, because my wife has been here sabotaging me the whole time. <laughs> Thermostat and thermometers, they are invaluable tools. A thermometer though, it doesn't change anything. It just registers the temperature. It is a passive apparatus. A thermostat, however, praise the Lord for thermostats, it is active, it regulates, it changes its surroundings. Now, if there's one thing we have learned about the Apostle Paul through our journey in Philippians, it's that he was a thermostat, that he wasn't governed by his circumstances, that he wasn't shaped by his surroundings. We saw last week that he had control of his thought life. Now, am I saying that Paul never struggled? No, but Paul does set us an example, not to be controlled by our thought life. He was happy with little. He was happy with a lot. He found joy in his circumstances, whether they were good or bad. He changed the environment around him, and he's still doing that. Think about it. Paul is still adjusting the environment as we are reading his letter nearly 2,000 years later. 
Now, if Paul was a thermostat, and Paul has told us repeatedly through Philippians, imitate me as I imitate Christ, what are you supposed to be? Well, you should be a thermostat too, not controlled by your circumstances. If we let our circumstances control us, then we will live lives that are joyless, defeated, and this morning, as we will see, ungrateful and full of griping and complaining. And so today our minds turn toward the idea of thanksgiving and gratitude, which, by the way, can y'all smell that this morning or is it just me? When I walk through the door, the, the aroma of deliciousness just hit me. Tonight we're going to be there cooking in the kitchen. We're going to have a, an awesome time together tonight of thanksgiving and a meal together. Uh, but our thoughts and our attention goes toward this time of year of, of thanksgiving and gratitude. But again, I want you to remember as we read our text this morning, I want you to remember the context from where Paul is writing. That he is imprisoned, chained to a Roman soldier, with a pending execution, and he writes to a church that had seen its fair share of trials. But what does he speak of, as we'll see? He speaks of gratitude and contentment. Paul was truly a thermostat, not controlled by the situation. And so today he gives us this timely reminder on how we should be content. So as we begin, I want to define some terms. I want to define gratitude and contentment. So gratitude is being thankful for what we have. And can we be completely honest? We are incredibly, incredibly blessed. I tell my kids all the time that they're rich. And they don't feel rich. And odds are you probably don't feel rich. But when you compare us as Americans to majority of the world, we are not just rich. We are filthy, stinking rich. But unfortunately, we're not always great at expressing gratitude. I find that I don't say thank you enough. And in fact, I see in our society, that's almost a lost art of telling other people, thank you. Christians should be the most thankful people on earth. Gratitude, being thankful for what you have. But contentment is not needing more. Contentment is almost an antonym to Americans. Westerners, especially Americans, we constantly strive for more. And in fact, the American dream says, get it all, have it all. And often, marketing, which the marketers today are incredible, they will show you or push you or prompt you where you have something that works perfectly well to say, this isn't good enough anymore, I need something newer and better. What a very American ideal. The old model is, is old, you need the new one. Discontentment drives other sins as well, envy. Well, I don't like what I have, I want what he has. Or lust, my spouse isn't attractive enough, I want somebody else's spouse or potential spouse. Power, the position I have isn't enough. Pride, I should have more after all, I deserve it. And though thanksgiving is hard enough, contentment is even harder. Now, isn't it interesting and a little bit strange that on Thursday, majority of Americans will sit around a table full of more food than we can eat, and we'll, and we'll go around the table and we'll express our, our gratitude for what we have. And then the very next day, there's this mob of people that storm the stores because what we have isn't enough. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not, I, I love everything about Christmas, including receiving gifts. My shirt size is a, is a medium, if you wanted to know. Um, I'm just kidding. 
Uh, I enjoy receiving gifts, and I love to give gifts. In fact, I'm horrible at it. Every time I buy gifts, they get open before Christmas. I love that part of it. Uh, but let me say this. There should also be this expression of thankfulness and also contentment as well. Gratitude says, thanks for what I have. Contentment says, if I don't ever get anything else, God, you have given me more than I deserve. Are we thermometers? Are we thermostats? Thermometers are thermostats. Are we living with contentment? Are we controlled by our circumstances? Or do we control the environment around us? So this morning, if you've got your Bibles, you know where we're at, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start off in verse 10. I want you to see this morning four ways to live as content people through the Apostle Paul's writing. Four ways to live as content people. Let's read verse 10 together. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what's going on here? A little bit of the backstory. Paul is writing roughly 10 years or so after he had founded, established, his ministry had established the uh, church in Philippi. And when he left Philippi, the Philippians supported him financially. They were the only church in Macedonia that did this. But the years went by and they were concerned for Paul, but they could no longer support him. Now, this could have been for a multitude of reasons. It could have been that they just lost track of Paul and didn't know how to locate him. could be that they didn't really know fully what Paul's needs were, or it most likely was that they were facing crushing poverty and just simply wanted to help for Paul, wanted to express concern for him, but they were no longer able to. But we know earlier on in the book of Philippians that they did, in fact, send a gift through a man named Epaphroditus, a generous gift to Paul while he was in Roman custody. And so Paul has received that gift, and he wants the Philippians to know that he's thankful. Because when you receive a gift, what do you say? Thank you, right? This just should be an automatic expression. But what meant more to Paul than the financial gift was the expression of love behind it from the Philippian people. But he wanted them to know he knew they were concerned, but he also understood why they couldn't help up until this point. And so I think we should be reminded here that all throughout Paul's ministry, Paul trusted that God would provide for his needs. And guess what? In God's timing, God did provide for Paul's needs. And so our first thought here, if you're taking notes, a contented person understands that God is in control. What's contentment again? It goes beyond gratitude. Gratitude says, Lord, thank you. Contentment says, God, this is enough. Understanding that God is in control is vital to our being content, that God knows what we need. He knows it before we need it, that he is the great provider. God's in control. Now, a lot of people hear that statement, and they often think, well, if God's in control, it really doesn't matter what I do. I beg to differ with that. Instead, I think just because God is in control, it doesn't mean that we don't still make free choices. I think it simply means that through God's knowledge, through his omniscience, his all-knowing nature, he chose to work in and through our free choices. And so God is in, con in control, and yet we also make free choices. So church, I have learned in the last three or four years so much about God being in control and having the ability to meet needs before we even know their needs. In fact, my wife and I have this saying that sometimes we've, we've had moments where needs come up and we think, I don't know what we're going to do. 
And somehow, maybe because he's God, he provides in a way that we never would have expected. And so we often say, okay, God, we should have known because you own the cattle on a thousand hills. You're in control and you can meet those needs as they come up that he provides. And so the Philippians had concern. They lacked opportunity. Sometimes I have opportunity, but I lack concern. Now, when God gives us the opportunity to give and to help others, may we have the concern to be able to meet that need and to help. A content person understands that God is in control. Let's keep looking at our text. Look at verse 11 with me. Paul says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation, or another word for that could be circumstance, I've learned in whatever situation, circumstance I am in to be content. A content person is unaffected by their circumstances. That is to say, their thermostats. Now, full transparency. Sometimes I struggle here. Sometimes I struggle here. Sometimes circumstances aren't great and I get a bad attitude. Now, I know you guys never get bad attitudes. But sometimes in difficult circumstances, I develop a bad attitude. Sometimes I want more than just my needs to be met. Sometimes I want my wants as well. But let me be honest with you. God has worked in my life in such a way in this area that the older I get, the more I am increasingly aware that life is not about stuff. Because stuff is just, it's stuff. And it doesn't last, it doesn't endure. Let me quote Jesus here for you on this. This is Luke twelve fifteen. Jesus says, one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Friends, can I remind you this morning, remind me most of all what's important in life? And that's God and other people, your family, your friends, your church family, people that God has put in your path to minister to. You know, sometimes we let our possessions possess us. But you know what I found amazing? is every time I've traveled out of the United States into a third world country and I meet people that have absolutely nothing and I wonder, man, how do you do it? How do you live like this? But you know the amazing thing about those people is they're happy. And they're, they're, they're not just happy, but they're exuberant. And it reminds me that we can be happy just like Paul is going to say in, with a little or with a lot. Now, now, don't get me wrong. I don't think we should feel bad for having excess. And most of us probably do in one way or another. That's a blessing from the Lord. Use it wisely. Be content in the excess. We should also remember that God will use us to help others in times of need. Look at verse 11 again. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be Content. Paul wanted them to know he wasn't speaking out of need. He wanted them to know that he was grateful for their gifts nonetheless. But do you see what Paul says here? He says, I have learned to be content. This is a process that is, is learned. As we journey through our Christian life, as we mature, as God shows us what's important, we learn to be content, that God is in control. He meets needs. He gives extra at times. Sometimes there is less, but we can find joy even during those times. In fact, Paul would write to Timothy, his son in the faith. This is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Paul says this, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and we can't take anything out of this world. He says this, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be 
content. Church, could we learn to practice contentment? Gratitude says, thank you, Lord. Contentment says, if you never give me anything else, God, this is enough. Verse 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low, and I also know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of, placing, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Again, we see that Paul says, I have learned. That is spiritual maturity exercised in his life. He's learned how to be content regardless of the circumstances that often want to steal our joy or steal our contentment. Now, we've said this all throughout this series. If our joy is tied to our circumstances, or our happiness is tied to what we have or what we don't have, we will spend so much of this life without joy and without happiness and without contentment. Paul says, when things are good, when things are bad, when I have excess, when I am in need, I have learned to be content. And let me remind you of this. It may be that you say, well, you know what? I'm content. All my needs are met and I have a lot of my wants. That doesn't mean you're content. Because oftentimes, even though we have all we want, we still want what? More. Let me read a proverb for you. Proverb 27, 20. He writes, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are the eyes of man. That is to say, we can have everything and more and still not be satisfied because our hearts are always pulled toward discontentment if you've ever seen that great spiritual movie the greatest showman uh, there's a song and the lyrics are this all the shine of a thousand spotlights all the stars we steal from the night sky will never be enough towers of gold are still too little these hands could hold the world but it'll never be enough and it's so often that is how we are that the eyes of man are never satisfied and so our temptation is when we have little to say, God, why aren't you meeting my needs? Why, why don't I have what other people have? Discontentment. Or it may be when we have plenty that we become so self-reliant that we have no need for God. That is still a different form of discontentment. So we, like Paul, must learn contentment in all circumstances. Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, let's be honest. This is one of the most abused verses in the New Testament. Our third thought is a content person is strengthened and dependent on God. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul is not saying that we can do anything. And we see this verse on coffee cups, on, on t-shirts, on graduation invitations. And it's great that we give God glory for our accomplishments. But again, context determines meaning. Paul is saying that in those moments where life is difficult, I'm strong to endure my circumstances. Why? Because Christ gives us this unseen strength. In fact, Paul would say elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 12.10, he says, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, here it is again, then I am made strong. Thankfulness and contentment come from being dependent on the Lord and drawing on his strength. And here's the interesting thing to me about the Apostle Paul. You know, it's one thing when somebody says something and then you think, you've never had a hard day in your life. What would you know about it? But that was not Paul. Let me read Paul, a little bit of Paul's testimony, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four through 27. Paul says, Five times I received at the hand of the Jews 39 lashes. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger, in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. But Paul says this, I have learned to be content. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Gratitude says, thank you, Lord. Contentment says, you know what? I have enough. Even if I never get anything else, you have given me hope and salvation and all the good things in my life. Now, our last thought this morning as we're looking at Paul's teaching on contentment. I want us to see this. A content person is concerned for others. A content person is concerned for others. Now, it's so easy to live life for self, but we will never find, I believe, true contentment there. Living for others, moving beyond ourselves is a symptom of contentment, and it also strangely brings contentment. Let's read the rest, verses 14 through 19. Follow along. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. He says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Paul wants to make sure that the Philippians understand that he's thankful for their gift. He didn't want them to have the impression that even though he had learned to be content, that he still didn't appreciate their help and their love and their concern for him. And so what do we see in the Philippian church? We see that they looked outside of themselves and they gave support Paul's ministry. Paul says in verse 15, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. So the Philippians were the only church in Macedonia that supported Paul's work to share the gospel. And this concerned Paul, well, why is that? One, because the other churches received the gospel, but they did not share in giving the gospel. The other churches also missed the spiritual blessing of giving. And so Paul points out to the Philippians, you get it. As God has blessed you with salvation, you gave back that others might receive what you receive. And, and also this, Paul would have us know as the church in Philippians came to know, that when we don't give, we miss the spiritual blessing of seeing others come to know Christ. And so Paul says, look in verse 17. I want you to see his concern for them. They were concerned for him, so they gave. He has concern for them also. He says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What is Paul saying here? He's saying, well, I appreciate your helping me. What I really appreciate is the blessing that is your benefit, Philippian church, for giving. Now, there's this, this principle in Scripture that giving brings blessing. Now, don't misunderstand this is not a prosperity gospel. This is not, well, if you give $100 to the Lord, well, he's going to increase your bank account by $1,000, $10,000, $100, whatever. That's not scriptural. 
But what Paul is saying is that obedience to do what God asks always results in God's blessing. It could be financial. It could be God's presence. Paul calls their giving a fragrant offering that pleases God. But here's what he says in verse 19. He says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Now, again, this isn't a blank check. This isn't prosperity gospel. Context determines meaning. What Paul is saying here is that you can't outgive God. That if you're faithful to give to God's word going forward and ministry continuing, that God will be faithful to meet your needs and to also enable you to continue to give as you support his word. And so church here, let me echo Paul and let me express gratitude for your giving to the Lord's word. But can I also challenge you this morning as well? Are you giving to the Lord? And maybe you say, well, you know what, I, I'm, I'm unable. I get that. Sometimes we're in such a place that we can't give. But here's what I would challenge you to do. You know, every week you walk by in the back here, these, these deposit boxes for offering, or you can give online. I would challenge you to do this, to start somewhere small and just see what happens. Just to see what happens. God wants to do big things, but we have to be obedient. Now, to share some about our church finances, you know, church, we owe $2.4 million on this building. And here's what I do. I pray every day that somebody would write a $2.4 million check. Now, some people say, well, Josh, that's just silly. But let me go back to what we said our first point was, that God is in control, that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and if he wants to do it, he'll do it. Absolutely he'll do it. But it won't be for me, because I don't have $2.4 million. But you know what I can do, church? I can do two things. And I do these two things, and I challenge you. In fact, I invite you to do these two things with me. One is to pray that God would meet this church's needs, but also that he would give an abundance that we can do even more than we're doing now. Because I have this vision, your staff has this vision to see our children's ministry expand because it's getting tighter and tighter back there, to be able to pay off this building, to do more, to reach into the further reaches of the, of the earth, and to be able to do ministry here, so what can we do? We can do our part and give as God leads us to give, not by compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. We can give as he leads us to give, but we can also do this. We can pray that God would meet the needs that we have because he is, in fact, God, and he's in control, but he works through us. So church, this morning as we close out, let me ask you this. How has Paul challenged you this morning as he concludes this letter? Are you a thermostat? Are you a thermometer? Are we pulled up and down and to and fro by our circumstances? Or are we content and thankful for whatever season and environment God puts us in? And instead of being changed by our environment, that we change the people around us. Church, can I ask you this morning, Christian, are you thankful? Because we should be. Because last time I checked, things were pretty good. We all have our problems, but you know what God gives us in the midst of that? He gives us his presence, and he gives us one another to comfort one another, to challenge one another, to encourage one another. What about this? Maybe you're thankful. Are you content? Are you content? If God didn't do another thing for you, could you say, God, thank you for all that you've given me, and I can honestly say that I'm in a good spot. Maybe this morning we need to repent for our lack of contentment or, or thanksgiving. 
and walk in righteousness. Maybe we need to count our blessings. I challenge you, go home, get a pen and paper. Write down every blessing that God has put in your life. You will be still here tomorrow morning writing down your blessings. Maybe we need to be reminded this morning that God is in control. That we still make free decisions, yes, but that God is ultimately working all things out for his good, our good, and his glory. Maybe this morning God is asking you to give and you say, well, you know what, I've never done that. Well, maybe God is inviting you into a deeper walk with him as you serve and as you practice contentment through your giving. Be obedient to that because you can't outgive God. Now, as we close, I want to share one more verse with you, one more thought with you. I know we're out of time. It's, it's a quick thought. Look at verse 20. Paul says this. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Paul has shared with us a correct theology on gratitude, on contentment, on giving. And here's what I see all throughout Scripture. A right theology always leads to a doxology. Theology, this is who God is, this is what God expects, always leads to doxology. What is doxology? Well, it's, it's, it's simply a praise. It's simply a praise to say, God, you are good. What does he say in verse 20 one more time? To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Gratitude. Thank you, Lord. Contentment, God. This is enough. Obedience to give as God leads us to give. But in all that, say, God, you are good and you're kind and you're loving and you're gracious. How could I do anything else but say to God our Father, glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.